The sermon we're, we're going to hear is really a direct, is a direct response to last Sunday, which if, if you love Psalm 139, I'm sure that as you heard last Sunday's sermon, you were thinking, God knows me. He knows who I am. And not only that, the fact that God knows me and still decides to love me so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I mean, the next step then is, are you invited by Christ? Have you been invited by Christ? And I know of no better passage in the Bible, especially at the beginning of the New Testament. This is the first time in the New Testament that Jesus makes a general call besides his disciples to come and follow him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, uh, this morning rather. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, in particular verse 28 to 30, but I'd like to read from verse 25. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time... Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. What amazing words, right? To hear the Lord Jesus say this to us. If you haven't memorized this passage, I encourage you to do so. This is a passage that in your deepest, darkest moment, perhaps in the greatest trial of your life, you hear these words. The Lord calls you. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we look at what the Lord wants us to see here. Father, thank you so much for showing us these things. And as The Lord Jesus says here that he reveals the Father. He reveals you to whom he chooses. And so, Lord, I pray that those with us today that have not chosen to follow Christ would do so, that they would come, take upon the yoke of Christ. And for those of us who have called on you and who have chosen to walk a life of faithfulness, Lord, I pray that we would continue to hear the gentle and lowly voice of Christ, that we would continue to trade our difficult, burdensome yoke for his easy yoke and his light burden. Do this, Lord, for us by a miracle, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see in this text is is very obvious in verses 28 to 30. That's what we'll be focusing on is the call of Christ. The first thing he says is he invites us to come to him. It's plain. It's simple. There's no, hey, you need to go figure out your your house situation. You need to go figure out 
who you're going to marry. You need to go figure out what school you're going to go to. You need to figure out which sins are more egregious than the other sins you've committed. He didn't say any of that. He just says right there, come to me. It's interesting because in verse 27 he says, the son reveals the father to whom he chooses to reveal the father. And then the very next verse is choose to come to Christ. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful relationship between God's sovereignty, his all-knowing nature, and our decision as humans to come. And praise God that he gives us this invitation. He says, come, not only here, but look at this, in all of those passages underneath are passages inviting you to come to worship God. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 1-2, for example. Listen to this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. That's a paradox. And we'll see how the Bible is laced with these. Come, Still in verse 1, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now, what is the Lord talking about here? He's talking about himself. Come to me. I've got the goods. How do we know this? Because in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The invitation right there. Or at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Now, earlier in Revelation 22, if you read it, we're saying to Jesus, come. Come quickly. It'd be nice if the Lord came quickly, wouldn't it? I kind of don't want to pay electric bills anymore. Do you? I'd rather hear the sound, the cry, the sound of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, instead of hearing from FPL that you've got a late notice on your bill. I mean, you choose. I, I guess if you like to hear FPL call you, that's fine. But here, the shift has focused. Instead of inviting Christ to come back quickly, God is saying to you, to me, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let's invite everybody to the feast. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life. And there it is, without price. Do you know why the invitation is to come and buy things that are free? Why? Because Christ paid it all for you and for me. We don't have to show up with money. You may have a great retirement portfolio, but when you're dead, you'll be naked before the Lord. Nothing will be able to satisfy the price. 
except for Christ. So that's why there we emphasize without Christ. So Christ invites us to come to him. He doesn't invite us to come to a concept. He doesn't invite us to come to an ideology. He doesn't invite us to come to a group, a self-help group. He doesn't invite us. Listen to this. He doesn't even invite us to come to a nation. He invites us to come to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Doesn't that reassure you? That Christ doesn't say, hey, if you don't got these points down in your theology, I'm sorry, you don't make the cut. Or if you don't come from this group of people, sorry, you don't make the cut. In fact, there's a parable where Jesus tells us that a master throws a grand party and he invites the the guests of honor. He says, come. And they reject him. So in the parable, the master goes out and he destroys all of them. He says, okay, if they won't come, if the honored guests themselves won't come, he tells his servants, go, just proclaim it in the streets. Whoever wants to come can come. And guess who came? All who were invited. And they sat and they ate. Like you and me, they came from all backgrounds. Social, economic, ethnic, educational. They came from all backgrounds to feast with the master. That's what the kingdom of God is like, isn't it? So, you come to him, but look at this. Christ invites all who labor and are heavy laden. In verse 28, the second part there. So who is this for? Who, who labors and who's heavy laden? Perhaps it's the self-righteous person who labors for their salvation. Who says, I need to work to earn this. My friend, if that's you, you'll be working forever. But not with the presence of the Lord. Because God requires perfection. And if you break one law, you've broken all of them. Never to be healed again. But if you look to Christ and you say, Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Christ stood in my place. He's my righteousness. If that's your boast, you're welcome. You come into the kingdom of God. But I want us to notice something particular about these words. Those who labor and those who are heavy laden. First of all, there's those who burden themselves. Those who labor. They just labor. You know, Jesus told us that there are people who ask this question or who, who think this way. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You burden yourself. You labor. You want everything to be perfect. You want everything to be right and ordered in a fallen world. And that's you. That's anxiety. That's the worries of this life. And Jesus, what does he say? Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given in their time. We don't have to worry about any of these things. Do you labor? Do you burden yourself? Come to Christ. He invites you. 
Or another very common theme in the Gospels is Christ's compassion for those who are heavy laden or those who are burdened by others. They are heavy laden. The burden has been added to them. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Why did Christ have such compassion for these people? Why does he have compassion for us? Look right there. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Or look at this in Matthew 23, verse 4. The Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is describing what the Pharisees and scribes do. Listen carefully. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Now listen to this. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So perhaps the burdens that you feel have been laid on you because other people in your life are not willing to lift a finger. Perhaps you've just become a Christian and it's very difficult for you to walk with the Lord. Come to Christ. Come be with His body. I hope none of us would ever lay the burdens on others whether they are our neighbors, our family members, without lifting one finger. Can we become Pharisees? Can we become scribes? Can we become self-righteous in our own pursuit of God? The danger is real for us to look to others and impose on them standards that Christ would himself never impose. And then on top of that, to say, this is the standard, you must follow, you must obey. God bless you. Go, be filled and warmed. And we don't lift one finger to help those who are in need. That is not the character of the church, is it? The character of Christ. Listen to this. Why is Christ different from the Pharisees and the scribes? Because not only did he lift all of his fingers, he stretched out his arms and took the place of sinners. Would a Pharisee do that? No. And so Jesus is different because he, he lifts all the fingers. He works on our behalf. Praise God. Come. Come to Christ. Come. Let him do the work. But then finally, we see here that Christ invites us to rest. This is really interesting. Look at verse 28. Christ tells us, I will give you rest. Now, he could have just said that, right? He could have just said, hey, I'm going to give you, this is, this is yours. It's a car, you know. Here you go. Take it. It's yours. Drive it. And that would be, you know, we'd be satisfied with that, right? He says, I'm going to give you something. Here it is. But then in verse 29, did you notice? It says, we will find it. So not only does Christ give it, we have to seek it. So again, he places the responsibility right on us. And he says, I'm going to give it. Here it is, freely. Now find it. That's a paradox, isn't it? It's, it's kind of an interesting, an interesting idea here. 
which is it, Lord? Are you going to give it to us and then make it easy for us? Or are you just going to make us find it? Both, yes. The Lord will give it. He will give us his eternal rest, his salvation. He will give it. Will you find it? How do you find it? Come to me, the Lord says. Again, he says, come. That's the echo. But this is really interesting because now, in this small little verse, we come to a really important point, which is number two, that the yoke of Christ is what Christ calls us to bear. Listen to this. Verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the first thing is that he tells us, take up his yoke. How do you find rest? You take up a yoke. So did you notice that paradox again? It's the paradox. So what is a paradox? It's an absurd statement that at face value seems to be contradictory, but then when you kind of start peeling back the layers and you see, oh, this actually can be true. This is actually a, a thing. In Matthew, I think Matthew uses this perhaps just as much as Luke does, but it's a literary device. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting tool, and it can express an idea that is not in line with the traditional concept. Think about it. Christ is saying, come rest. Take my yoke, which symbolizes what? Work. Come rest, and here's how you do it, by working. That's very strange. I don't know if you noticed that. As I was studying this this past week, I thought, Lord, what are you doing here? You're calling us to rest, but then you're saying rest by working. James does this too. Remember in James chapter 1, he says, if any one of you lack wisdom, we should ask God. Think about it. Asking God for wisdom requires the wisdom and discernment to know that you lack wisdom to ask God. So which is it? Do you lack the wisdom or are you wise? Because if you're wise, you're going to ask God because you lack wisdom. Or Jesus says to a paralytic man in the very earlier chapters of Matthew in chapter 9, he says to the paralytic, he can't walk. He says, rise. And the man gets up and walks. Or listen to this. To follow Jesus requires self-denial. We must take up, the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, is the same word that Jesus says when he says, take up your cross. Take it up. If you want to follow Christ, you have to deny yourself. But you must affirm your self-denial if you want to deny yourself to follow Christ. So, the gospel is riddled with paradox. The perfect Son of God, spotless, pure, blameless Lamb of God, is the only viable sacrifice. And what kind of sacrifice is it? The sacrifice for sin. He becomes sin so that we become righteous. That's the ultimate paradox. That Christ would take our place, the spotless lamb, and he would become so the, the scourge of the earth that God would pour his wrath on Christ for me and you. I deserve that. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve hell and separation from God. And yet Christ takes it for me. 
He says, come, come to me. I am filled with paradoxes. Don't you see? And if you come, you'll learn the way of the kingdom, not the way of the world. This is a different mind. This is a different thought. So what is Christ's yoke? You know, we talk about this. I love this imagery here of, you know, this man, he's, or a woman, he, they're pushing this uh, into, deep into the ground as the oxen are going. You know, they weigh 2,000 pounds. They're pooling. They're harvesting all this stuff. They're digging. Um, but when I think about the yoke of Christ, and I wish somebody could, I don't know where I heard this from, but I, one time I heard a sermon illustration of, you know, Christ, you see the person there pulling, I don't know what that thing is called. Plow, Plow there we go, thank you. <laughs> plow, they're pulling the plow. I mean, what you Google sometimes and what comes up on these, you know, oh, you'll see the next picture what I'm talking about. This, per- yeah, this right here. What is that? Dangling donkey. I didn't want to Google dangling donkey because I wasn't sure what was going to come up, and I encourage you not to do that. But this, this came up when I said, yoke of Christ. And, but this is an incomplete picture because, you know, the donkey's dangling there, just kind of like, okay, what do I do now? But the burden is too heavy, right? But the reality is that Christ is behind. He's on the plow, and he's lifting the whole thing up while you're dangling. And he's pushing you, and you're working, and he's pushing it, and he's getting things done. If somebody can draw that or find a picture of that, I would love that. You know, somebody holding the thing up off the ground and the donkey just dangling there. Uh, but I, you know, when Tabitha, sometimes she wears these overalls that really harness, like they're, they're really like a harness, and she'll get into things that she shouldn't get into, and I'll just grab her by the back of it and pick her up. And then she points to where she wants to go, and I just bring her. And it's, re- it's a really interesting image here because, I, I mean, I, do- I don't know how to convey this paradox in any other way than to say, when Christ calls you to eternal rest, he says, take my yoke, which means you're going to work. But the work that you're doing, in verse 30, says that work is light. It's easy. Now, that's, that's another interesting point because Jesus does say in John in this world you will have trials and tribulations but fear not I have overcome the world again that okay Lord you just told me that there's going to be trials and tribulations there's going to be a burden coming there's going to be a wave of difficulty why would you tell me that so you don't fear why because I've overcome the world come to Christ. I was reading Exodus chapter 3 and 4 last night to the children, and I just thought about this illustration of Christ taking up the plow, and, you know, we're just dangling there. In Exodus 3 and 4, you know how many times Moses tells God, I can't do it? He tells him many times, I can't do it. I'm not your guy, I'm not eloquent. What if I tell them it's you, and they're like, who's that? Okay, I make every pathway that Moses had of saying, I can't do this, God met him right there and said, no, I've got a way. Moses, you're not getting the point. 
The point is not, hey, you're a brilliant strategist, and I need you with your brilliance to figure out how to get my people out of Egypt. That wasn't God's posture. Read Exodus 3 and 4. God's posture was showing up in a burning bush but not consuming it. Again, another paradox. He calls out to Moses. He knows Moses. How? Moses says, here I am. This is kind of strange. And then he tells Moses, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. (laughs) You're about to see what I'm going to do to you. I mean, I wonder what would happen. I mean, you, you, you know, we read that and we think, oh gosh, Moses, come on. You and I would be just in the same boat. We would not know what in the world is happening. And Moses is standing there and God is speaking to him and God is telling him, he's not asking him, hey, Moses, I just, you know, the way you handled the sheep with Jethro and the girls, amazing. I love that. That's what I'm looking for. The muster, the, the courage for you to stand up to these ladies, that's what I need. Can you do it? Can you come recruit yourself? That's not how God approaches him. He says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, my people have cried out, they need to go worship me in the wilderness. And then Moses keeps just saying, I'm just not your guy. I, you know, I don't, I even talk funny. So look in Exodus 4, what he says. After all these excuses, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. No excuses. Now listen to this very interesting phrase. Six, verse 16 of chapter 4. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. In other words, what I say to you, you'll say to Aaron, and that's how we're going to get this thing done. I mean, it's never clean with the Lord, is it? I mean, it's never clean. Like, this is not a clean strategy, right? I mean, let's, let's create a chain of command here of communication, I'll tell you something, and you tell Aaron, and then they'll tell the elders. The elders will then tell Pharaoh. Okay? Is that good? Does that sound like a reasonable plan? Why doesn't Moses just go up to Pharaoh and say, hey, this is what the Lord wants you to do? Well, God doesn't work the way we work. God works according to his purpose. He is, remember, he's the guy on the plow. He's going to get it done. And you, you could just be dangling there. And that's what God is calling Moses to do. Does Moses have to walk, trek the distance to go talk to Pharaoh? Absolutely. But God is giving him the words to talk. He's telling him, go tell this to Pharaoh. By the way, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you because I'm going to harden his heart. But I'm going to give you a staff. And your staff is going to turn into a snake. And that's how you're going to convince Pharaoh. And how many plagues did they have? Ten wonderful signs, and Pharaoh still didn't get it. And then God said, okay, I've got to do it now. I've used the natural created order. I've done all these things. 
I'm going to continue doing my work, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send an angel, and we're going to have to slaughter the firstborn of every son of Egyptian man. Put blood on your door so I can pass over. If you got blood on your door, I'm going to pass over. Where's Moses at this point? I thought God was using Moses to tell Pharaoh to get the people out of Egypt. Do you see how this is a story about God working through a person that is completely unable to do what God wants him to do? And at the end of it, God exalts himself. We'll look at chapter 34. He passes before Moses, before we get ahead. I'm, I'm really excited about the book of Exodus. Reading it to the kids, I'm very animated about it, so the kids get scared, but it's okay. Because <laughs> Exodus 3 is a, I mean, Exodus is a scary book. It really is, but it's a great book. So what is the yoke? Remember what God told Moses, I'm going to teach you what to do. Very next phrase here is, take my yoke and learn. Okay, so this entails learning. So we can say that it is all of Christ's teaching and commands because they got to learn it. So if you take upon the yoke of Christ, what do, you gotta, what do you have to see? What do you have to do? He says you have to learn. It's not just take up the yoke, do the work. You're going to have to work hard now. It's learn the commands. So we learn from him. So all of his teaching and commands, we must learn from him. This brings up a really interesting question. Why should we learn from Christ? Why? You know, Christ says, come to me and learn from me. Well, if you're in your own path and you think that you're right and you don't need to learn, well, then Christ isn't for you. Because Christ says, when you come to me, you must learn. And there's three reasons why he tells us we must learn. Listen carefully to this. The whole book of Matthew tells us one thing about Jesus in particular. Christ has authority. Not just over nature, over all things. At the beginning of the book, you kind of see glimpses of it. He's healing people. He's dealing with demons. He's dealing with rulers. He's dealing with nature. And so by the end of the book, Matthew 28, you hear, all authority has been given to me. I want to come to the Lord because all authority has been given to him. So what authority does he have? The first thing we see in verse 27, so chapter, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Christ has the authority to reveal the Father. That's what we must learn. Look at what he says in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you come to Christ, do you know what you're demonstrating? Do you know what I'm demonstrating? We believe that Jesus has the authority to reveal the Father. But look at this. Christ also has the authority to forgive sins. 
I love the story. Jesus enters the synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand and he doesn't say, be healed. That's not the first thing he says. He says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, what? Who can say that except God alone? This man is blaspheming. And knowing Jesus knew their hearts. He, it says that he knew their hearts. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Look at what Jesus says to these people who are calling him blasphemous. Jesus says to them, that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to prove it to you right now. If this doesn't go through, then I don't have the authority to forgive sins. If it does, I have the authority to forgive sins. Ready? He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And you know what the paralytic did? He obeyed. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Did you need proof? There it is. He told the man, get up and walk. And the man walked. The question is not whether he has the authority to forgive sins. The question is, are you willing to be forgiven? Do you need to be forgiven? I submit to you, brothers and sisters, I need to be forgiven. If I don't receive that forgiveness, I don't think I'm going to go to heaven. If I don't extend that forgiveness, then the Father hasn't truly forgiven me. We go to Christ because he says, I have the authority to forgive you. Come. Come to me. But finally, Christ has the authority to teach. And that's the main point here. That after the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember the very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount? I encourage you when we read big discourses like this to never miss the last verse of those discourses. This is the very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it starts with the Beatitudes, then Jesus goes on and gives us the law on certain things. And at the end, you know, that whole passage about anxiety and being anxious about tomorrow, that's in there. And then in chapter 7, at the very end, look at what Matthew says. Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So why do you want to learn from Christ? Because he has the authority to teach. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, in case you were wondering, everywhere, every sphere that you can see with your eyes and that you cannot see with your eyes has been given to Christ. Praise God. Because he says, with all that authority, he says, come to me. Hide yourselves in me. I have the authority. So we must learn from Christ. Christ has the authority to reveal the Father. He has the authority to forgive sins. And most importantly, he has the authority to teach. And all of that is wrapped up into the call of taking up the yoke of Christ and learning from him.
But Matthew gives us two very important reasons for why we should listen to Jesus, why we should come to Jesus. Listen to this. We need to think about the character of Christ. Of all the words that Christ could have used for the men and women of his day, come to me, I am domineering and righteous. Come to me, I have all authority, and I put men in tombs. Come to me, I slay dragons. I mean, what else, what else could Jesus say? I mean, all those things are somewhat true, right? Of all the words he could use, I uphold justice and mercy and righteousness, and nobody leaves my dominion. Everybody, all things under my... He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? He says, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me, key word, for... Because I am gentle and lowly. That's the first time in the New Testament that Christ describes himself. And he says, I am gentle and lowly. This shouldn't surprise us, though, because... In the Old Testament, the first time we get a huge glimpse of God's character is in Exodus 34. And there are seven words that describe the Lord. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. And you see how I've laid it out there. I just want you to follow along. There are seven descriptors. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, number one, and Gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now this is important, listen to this. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Now, you may think, at reading that, just like I thought when I read that, and didn't spend too much time carefully looking at that, that, man, God is harsh. I mean, he visits the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But think about that. That's a grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, children, and perhaps great-grandchildren. That's it. But look up ahead at verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. But I thought the God of the Old Testament was harsh and cruel. I thought he was capricious and angry and wrathful. And the seven words, seven descriptors of, of God in the Old Testament are merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity. The first time we get a, a glimpse of who, who God is in the Old Testament, he tells us, this is who I am. First time we get a glimpse of who Christ is, is I am gentle and lowly. 
Do you see how God wants you to know, God wants me to know, that when we come to Him, we are coming to a gracious and loving God. We are not coming to a God who doesn't know where we are, who can't meet us in our need, who's not sympathetic with our weaknesses, but one who has, because Christ has stepped into our shoes, because he is fully human, because he bore the weight of guilt and sin on his shoulders, he knows us. He's gentle. He's lowly. Come to him. So I've got two stories and then one prophecy as a direct application of chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. If you turn the Bible page from chapter 11 to chapter 12, the two stories are in verses 1 to 8 and then 9 to 14. Listen to chapter 12, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole things. So I'm not going to read these. You can read them. They're there for you. Jesus goes to the grain fields on the Sabbath. And listen to this. His disciples were hungry. Every time you see hunger appear in the Gospel of Matthew, remember, Jesus has compassion for hungry people. Jesus has compassion for thirsty people. These are the people that he's seeking, not the fed and the fattened, the starving, the deprived. So they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat on the Sabbath. This is what the disciples are doing on the Sabbath. Verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 3, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I I guess I'm going to read the whole thing because it's great. Uh, Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Why? Because they eat. They eat the bread. Verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. You're standing in the presence of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and you're worried about some grain. Verse 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Don't you see the oozing of the mercy of Christ here? The gentleness and lowliness of Christ here to say, you're missing the entire point. Come to me. See that I feed the hungry, not with bread that perishes, with bread that lasts forever. You know, that's one of the reasons why we do the Lord's Supper. It symbolizes the the cup and the bread that will never make us thirsty or hungry again. He says, come and eat. Come. I mean, look in verse 9 to 14. Listen to this. We already talked about this, but listen carefully to the story. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? 
they, so, they might, so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand, and it was, listen to this, restored, healthy. These are the words that describe Christ's work. They're restored, healthy, like the other. Now listen to this, but, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so then Matthew gives us one prophecy. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. Listen to this. Jesus, aware of this, aware of the plot of the Pharisees to kill him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Do you see how Christ's ministry is just about healing, restoration, love, kindness, mercy. It matches the invitation in Matthew chapter 11 that we just read. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus says in other places, listen, healthy people don't need a physician. Who needs a physician? The sick people. Jesus is accused of eating with sinners and tax collectors. What an accusation. And he doesn't say, no, 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 I, I, you know, I'm too righteous to admit that I, I eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. He says, what does he say? For such is the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful invitation. Come, listen to this prophecy, Matthew 12, verse 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Who says this to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? When Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from heaven that calls out and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to this, verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you see the picture here? What do you do with a, with a stick that's about to break? You just break it, right? Because you need new growth. But Christ doesn't break it. A bruised reed he will not break. So what does he do? He mends it. He heals it. He restores it. What about a smoldering wick? It's about to go out. What do you do when a candle's about to go out? You know, hurricane season. Got the candle there. It's about to go out. It's puttering at the, you know, its last breath. You blow it out, right? 
What does Christ do? He invigorates the soul that's about to lose all of its fire. A smoldering wick he will not quench. This is who is inviting you to come. The Lord who will not bruise you. The Lord who will not quench you. The Lord who will not lay on you burdens that you cannot bear and then tell you, go figure it out without lifting a finger. We're known by God. And he knows our frame. He knows we are weak. So what does he do? He invites us to come to Christ. And I hope you come to Christ. In the next few moments as we pray, if you need to come to the Lord, if you need to repent of your sin, if you need to seek his forgiveness, I invite you to do that now as we pray. I invite you to say, Lord, I need to come. I truly haven't come to you. I've been living with this burden, this immense weight, and I'm ready to take your yoke. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to learn. Because I know you're gentle and lowly, and I know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. If you've already come to the Lord, would you just praise the Lord that he is this God, that he is this kind of God. He is patient, kind. He stoops to our level and he says, I'm waiting on you. I'm not going anywhere. Let's pray. Father, as we think of your words, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly and you will find rest for your souls for my burden is light and my yoke is easy Lord these words are precious words I pray for my friends here who are thinking in their minds, deciding whether they should come to seek forgiveness. Lord, would you lead them to come to you? Lord, I pray for our vision of Christ to be the vision of gentleness and lowliness. Lord, I thank you that you came, you humbled yourself, took our sins upon your shoulders, bore the weight of our sin, labored for perfect righteousness, sinless. And you did it all to extend the invitation to us to come. Father, would you do a mighty work for your glory? In Jesus' name. As we stand, I invite you to come to either of the the corner prayer pockets here. If you need to come and you need to ask the Lord for forgiveness, there's people willing to do that with you. If you need to come just because you're burdened and the, the world is weighing on you, I invite you to do that as well. But let's sing this amazing song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.